If uh, you've been with us in this series, you know that we are in Matthew chapter 4, and so I'd invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Last week we looked at verses 1 to 11 and we saw the how Christ overcame temptation in the wilderness. And now it's time to see Jesus. Really, it's, it's time now to, to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and see who he is. And Matthew's going to show us Jesus now for the rest of this book. He's going to do this by alternating between Jesus' actions and descriptions of Jesus' ministry on the one hand, and then showing us Jesus' words and sermons and speeches on the other. Matthew 5, or, or sorry, Matthew has really five sections that begin with narrative, descriptions of Jesus' ministry, and then end with Jesus' words. And in our text, we have really the first narrative section of the book. We have, we have the first narrative section, and then we have the first discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're really coming up to the Sermon on the Mount. As I said, there's five sections through the book that alternate with the pattern narrative and then discourse narrative and then discourse. And each discourse ends with, and when Jesus finished. And I just want to show you that really quick. The Sermon on the Mount is, is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And the Sermon on the Mount ends in Matthew 7 and verse 28. And it says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. The following narrative then goes all the way to Matthew chapter 10. And in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 5, Jesus commissions his 12 apostles and sends them out for ministry. And that section ends chapter 11 verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. The third discourse starts in Matthew chapter 13. It's a whole chapter of parables. And that ends in Matthew 13 and verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? The fourth discourse is on forgiveness and caring for one another. That's in Matthew 18 and Matthew chapter 19 and verse 1 says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from, the, from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. The fifth narrative goes, all, goes from there all the way to the end of Matthew chapter 23. And of course, there's times where Jesus speaks in these, but, the, but they're not as, as extended sections as we see in the discourses. Uh, the final message, the final discourse in Matthew, in the book of Matthew is Matthew 24 and 25. And it's on the judgment of Jerusalem and the, the second coming of Christ. And then Matthew 26 and verse 1 says, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And so we're going to see what Jesus does and says in these five narrative sections, and then we're going to see Jesus' teaching and preaching in the extended discourses. And the first discourse, like I said, is the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew seems eager to really get to the Sermon on the Mount, and so he just gives us a really brief overview of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And so let's look at, our, at the ministry of 
this Jesus. He is the Christ. He's the King of Israel. He's the Son of God. And uh, we're going to see him and what he does. Let's begin just by reading our text, Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 18, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, And John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And when he, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. We're going to break this text into three sections. I called this message the Galilean ministry of Jesus Christ. And in the first section, Jesus moves back to Galilee, which fulfills Scripture from Isaiah. Jesus is light, and that light shone on Galilee. And we're going to call that section, uh, number one, the light of Jesus Christ. That's from verses 12 to 17. And then Jesus calls disciples to follow him in verses 18 to 22. And we're going to call that the call of Jesus Christ. Again, verses 18 to 22. And then finally, we'll see in verses 23 to 25, Jesus' ministry in Galilee, a little overview of his ministry, and we'll just simply call that the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so let's begin this morning then and see, number one, the light of Jesus Christ in verses 12 to 17. Verse 12 tells us that when he heard that John had been arrested, he, that is Jesus, withdrew into Galilee. Now, here Matthew really skips over the whole first year of Jesus' ministry. Jesus and John the Baptist ministered near each other in Judea, and Jesus went to a wedding in Cana of Galilee where he did his first miracle. He returned to Galilee through Samaria, and he spoke, if you remember, to the woman by the well. And all of that earlier ministry is recorded for us in the Gospel of John, but Matthew really skips all of that and takes us to Galilee by simply saying, when John was arrested. When John was arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And we're going to hear more about John's arrest later in chapter 14. But right now, Matthew wants us to focus on Jesus. Jesus' withdrawal isn't likely out of fear or anything that John was arrested and so he now withdraws. 
Um, the same Herod who arrested John was over Galilee as well as he was over Judea. And ultimately, Jesus then goes to Galilee to fulfill Scripture. Jesus returned to his hometown of Nazareth. And uh, Luke 4, 16 to 30 tells us that when he when he went there, when he went to Nazareth, he proclaimed himself as the Messiah, and the the town tried to throw him off of a cliff. Now, all Matthew says about that is in verse 13, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. And so he went to Nazareth, but he left there. Nazareth is as well is, is as well in Galilee. And he lived in Capernaum by the sea. Both of these places, Nazareth and Capernaum, Galilee, were in the northwest of Israel, at the northwest end of what they called the Sea of Galilee, which is really just a a fairly big lake. Uh, But Matthew and Mark call it the sea. Luke always calls it a lake, but it's it's just north of the Dead Sea. And surrounding this lake was numerous fishing villages. Galilee wasn't a really a a large area, but it was very well populated. Uh, Josephus tells us that there was 204 cities in Galilee that had 1,500 people or more. So it's a a very populated area, lots of of smaller type villages, a lot of them fishing villages. And, And the rest of verse 13 tells us that this was the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And those, of course, were two of the sons of Israel. And they were given the area of Galilee, the area that was west and north of the Sea of Galilee for their inheritance. Now, Matthew tells us that all of this happened, that Jesus moved there because God had planned it this way. Jesus' move to Galilee fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Look at verse 14 again of our text. And so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the, the, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And once again, this gospel points us to see fulfilled prophecy. In the, in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ, prophecy is fulfilled, and, and this time it's from Isaiah chapter 9. Now we've already gone, gone back to Isaiah chapter 9 and looked at that whole context in a previous message. Remember Isaiah 7.14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9.6, just a few verses after this quote from Isaiah 9.1 and 2, uh, Isaiah 9.6 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah predicted that the people of Zebulun and Naphtali would see a great light. And Galilee here is called Galilee of the Gentiles because it's a place where many Gentiles lived, both in Isaiah's day and in Jesus' day. This was a a place where many, many Gentiles lived. The the way of the sea refers to uh, a major highway that went from Egypt through the Philistine area and up through Galilee and then led into Assyria. And because this this route was such a, a major route. It was a major trade route, and many Gentiles ended up settling there. 
And so Galilee was, was also in this, because it was on this highway, it was one of the first places that was taken and deported to Assyria when the king of Assyria conquered Israel. And so the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem looked down on the whole area, calling it Galilee of the Gentiles because of the, the Gentile influence there. And the Gentile influence made it a very dark place. They were people dwelling in darkness under the shadow of death. To the Jews in Jerusalem, the darkness of the Galileans made them undesirable. They didn't want to minister there. They didn't want to contaminate themselves. And so they didn't interact with those people if at all possible. But Jesus was exactly the opposite of the religious leaders. For him, the darkness was the perfect place to shine his light. Matthew 9 and verse 9 and following records the calling of Matthew, the Matthew who wrote this gospel. Matthew was a tax collector and he lived in Capernaum. And Jesus then ate at Matthew's house and many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. Matthew 9.11 says, When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to call sinners to himself. He came to reach those in darkness and bring them to his light. Throughout scripture, darkness is a metaphor for ignorance of the mind, for for a, a, a blind mind that cannot see, or for a hard heart. And this intellectual darkness leads to moral darkness. Lack of understanding results in a lack of righteousness. Ephesians 4, 17 tells us, tells believers not to live like the Gentiles. Paul says they are darkened in their understanding. Verse chapter 4, 18. And such darkness leads to sensuality and impurity. Ephesians 4, 19. Ephesians 1 and verse 18 describes salvation as having the eyes of your heart enlightened. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 18, Paul's mission is described as opening the eyes of the Gentiles so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so darkness is connected with the power of Satan. And turning from that darkness is turning to God or turning to the light for the forgiveness of one's sins. When someone is in the darkness of sin, they want to hide their sin in the dark. They want to cover their sin. They want to conceal their sin. But when someone turns to the Lord, they confess their sins. They uncover their sins and they bring their sins to the light and their sins are forgiven. John 3.19 says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus is the light of the world. But people loved darkness and they refused to come to Him. They refused to come to the light. They would not forsake their sins. They they did not want their sins to be exposed. 
But others did come to the light and they forsook their sins. And now, according to John, their works are done in God. Now, Paul described this salvation like this in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. He says, For God who said, Light, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Before that, he said of a group of people that he called the perishing or those who are perishing, he said, this is 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in their case, the God of this world, small g, God of this world, that is referring to Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Blindness is spiritual darkness that keeps someone from seeing the light of Jesus Christ. And in salvation, God calls us out of this darkness, and now we see. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God is here here called the one who called you out of darkness. We were called out so that we might proclaim his excellencies, which we now see in the light of his salvation. And so it's no surprise that Matthew tells us that when Jesus came to Galilee, the people saw a great light. Jesus called himself the light of the world. John 8 and verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. John 9 and verse 5, as long as I am in the world, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And again, John 12 and verse 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And even the Old Testament predicted that Christ would be a light to the world, not only in Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, which was quoted in our passage, but listen to Isaiah 42 and verse 6. This is Yahweh speaking to the Messiah. Isaiah 42, 6. He says, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Here we see that the Messiah is going to be a light for the nations, to open blind eyes and bring prisoners out of the darkness. Isaiah 49 and verse 6 Yahweh says to the the Messiah again, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus came as the light of the world, a, a light for the nations to bring salvation, to call people out of darkness, to deliver the people from the chains of their sins. And his preaching ministry then is a part of that light. In verse 17 of our text, he calls the people to repent. Verse 17, for from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' message was the same 
as that of John the Baptist. He called the nation to repent, to turn away from the sin because the, the kingdom of God was near, because the kingdom is at hand. You'll remember if you were with us that we spent a couple of Sundays looking at those words in, under John the Baptist in Matthew 3 and verse 1. We looked at the gospel of repentance and the, the gospel of the kingdom. And I don't think we can really fully grasp this, this picture of what's happening as Jesus, the light of the world, calls the nation to repent. Here is Jesus Christ, the perfect man, the only sinless man with a perfect sincerity and a perfect passion and a, a perfect love for these people. And he's going throughout these villages, calling the people to turn from sin. How amazing would it have been to hear Jesus preach? For those who were given eyes to see, it must have been truly remarkable to see Jesus preaching and healing and going throughout the countryside of Galilee. And we get our first glimpse then at, at some of those who responded to his preaching in verses 18 to 22 of our text. And so we saw the, the light of Jesus Christ. Now number two, we see the call of Jesus Christ in verses 18 to 22. Here, here we see four disciples who would later be made apostles, part of Jesus's 12, who would carry his light to the world. And we see how they responded to his call in this text. Jesus had already met some of these men in Judea um, when he was with John the Baptist ministering earlier. But Matthew doesn't focus on that. We could actually, let's go ahead and just see that though in the, the book of John. In John 1, starting at verse 28. John 1.28, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Skip down to verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And so here's two of John's disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his other brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And so two of John's disciples heard John the Baptist say about Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God. One of them was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and the other was most likely John who wrote this gospel. And these two sets of brothers, Andrew and Peter and James and John then, began to follow Jesus at this point. And, and our text then, Matthew chapter 4, as we go back there, seems to 
seems to point out a, another call, a, a further call for these men. About a year has now passed between what John describes in John chapter 1 and what Matthew records in Matthew chapter 4. In John 1, these men are called and, and begin to follow Jesus, but they continue to work their vocation. They continue to be fishermen. But in our text, Jesus calls them to follow him on a full-time basis, if we can say it that way. So let's let's just read the text, Matthew 4. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now one of the unique things about Jesus and his ministry was that he trained disciples. Now other people had disciples before Jesus, but Jesus' ministry was always to equip his disciples to continue the work when he left. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14, he calls his disciples the light of the world. And so Jesus is light and now he equips and trains his disciples and now they are going to be the light of the world. God has chosen to accomplish his work through human vessels. And Jesus called certain men to himself in salvation and then he called certain of those to equip them to lead his church when he departed. And he called those disciples. A disciple is a learner. That's what the word disciple means. And that's going to be a key word for Matthew. The first time we're going to see this is in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. Then we'll see it 71 other times in this gospel. 71 other times we see the word disciple. The disciples literally followed Jesus around from town to town, but they also followed his teachings and they learned from him. And all Christians are called Disciples of Christ. A really important verse on that, a really important scripture is, is found in Acts 11.26. It says there, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And what we'll see on discipleship and, and the nature of a true disciple is going to be applicable to all Christians. A Christian is a disciple and a disciple is a Christian. And the first thing that we should note about a disciple is that they have heeded the call to repent. They have turned away from their sin. There's been a radical di- change in direction in, the, in their life. They were darkness, but now they are light in the Lord, Ephesians 5.8. Now they follow after Jesus. They learn from Him. And they, and, and the mark of such a one is obedience. Obedience. And that's what we see here with Simon and Andrew and, and James and John. Both of these sets of brothers. They're disciples already. They've, they've already started following Jesus. But now Jesus calls them to something new. He calls them to follow. And what, what He seems to mean here is that He's calling them to give up their occupations to follow Him full time. Jesus said to Simon, Peter and Andrew, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. 
In other words, you're no longer going to be fishers of fish. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now, that's actually a command there. Follow after me. And notice in verse 20, immediately, immediately, they, they obeyed, immediately they left their nets and they were, they were casting a net in verse 18 and now they leave their nets, plural, they leave all of their nets in verse 20 and, and they, they leave behind their occupation to follow Jesus full time. Now what's interesting about this is that Jesus chose his disciples. In the, in the ancient world, the usual practice was for a, a, a student to choose a rabbi. They would, a student would choose a teacher and then follow that rabbi and learn from him. But Jesus chose his own students. That's what he says in John 15 and verse 16. He says to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, that he may give it to you. And so Jesus chose his disciples and even appointed them that they would bear lasting fruit, fruit that abides. But again, the mark of a disciple is obedience. To be a disciple of Christ means to lose our life for his sake. It means that we are at least ready to give up everything, even if we don't actually lose everything in that moment. In Matthew 10 and verse 38, Jesus says this, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To follow Jesus means we see him for who he truly is, that he is Lord, that he is our Savior, that he is worthy of our worship. And so we forsake everything else. We forsake our sin. We forsake this world. We forsake everything and we lose our lives for his sake. If He is the Lord, then we must obey Him as the Lord of our life. If He is who He says He is, then He is worthy of our lives. And to find Jesus is really to find life. In Matthew 16 and verse 24, Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? We see that really the same thing with the sons of Zebedee. In verse 21 says that Jesus called them and again immediately they left the boat and their father and they followed him. And throughout the book of Matthew, what we're going to see is that there's this recognition that following Christ could mean tension in the family. Christ is going to have first place or no place. If we put family above Christ, he says that we are not worthy of him. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 21 kind of explains this tension that happens in the family. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And a father, his child, and, a ch- and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Matthew 10 and verse 34, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies 
will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 27, Peter says to the Lord, We have left everything and followed you. And in verse 29, Jesus says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. And so there's this recognition throughout the book of Matthew that a disciple might have to leave their family behind. The unsaved will persecute the saved. Those who are committed to Christ will acknowledge that serving God must come before pleasing men. Even among their own families, serving God must come first. Jesus Christ must have first place or no place. And I know that many of you have felt the tensions with your own families. And all that I know how to say to you is that Christ is worthy even of the the loss and persecution of family. Now, the the balance to all this, and Matthew brings this out as well, is that we don't forsake our families. We're to care for our families. We're to provide for our families. Zebedee could hire and, and actually did have hired men to work with him. But we don't forsake our families. But if our families forsake us because we follow after Christ and we put him first, we're called to bear it for Jesus' sake. And so discipleship, to be a Christian, really means to Obey whatever the cost. To follow after Jesus whatever the cost. And certain disciples may even be called to switch vocations to serve Jesus Christ. And whatever we do, the heart of discipleship is this, is that our lives are lived for the Lord as worship to Him. This is what we're called to. And as difficult as it may be, at times we should never forget that serving Jesus Christ is our highest privilege. That worship fuels obedience so that it's a joy to be able to serve one as worthy as our Savior. We're not to be like those who give up sin reluctantly out of a fear of hell, but we are those who live for God joyfully out of a love for Him. And so what a privilege it would be for Simon and Andrew, James and John to be called to play a part with Jesus in his work. As Jesus calls them to leave their occupations and follow after him, what a privilege it was for them to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And the same privilege is ours, whatever our role is in the body of Christ, the same privilege is ours as disciples to live for our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that was the call of Jesus Christ, a a call to not only repent and turn from sin, but a call to follow after Jesus, a call to obey Him, a call to live for His sake. And now thirdly, we see the, the ministry of Jesus Christ in verses 23 to 25. The ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to send his disciples out later as the light of the world. But before he does, he makes and and really models ministry for them. And he teaches them his ways. He teaches them his truth. And here we see in verses 23 to 25, the remarkable ministry of Jesus Christ. And it's characterized by three actions in verse 23. Teaching, preaching, and healing. Teaching, preaching, and healing. Here is the light of the world letting his light shine, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, 
teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus lived in Capernaum, as we saw in verse 13, but he ministered throughout all Galilee. He went from village to village, teaching, proclaiming, and healing. The first aspect there of Jesus' ministry is teaching in their synagogue. The synagogue was a, a gathering place for worship, for teaching, but also for, for judgment and for the courts throughout Israel. Matthew 10.17, Jesus says, Beware of men, they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And so the synagogue was not only a place of worship, but also a place where justice was given, a place of judgment, a place where the courts were. And traveling rabbis, which is again is teachers, would often be asked to teach from the Old Testament when they came to a synagogue. Teaching is a very general word. It just simply means to teach, to instruct in any and every setting. And Jesus was the ultimate teacher. The second part of his ministry in verse 23 is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Proclaiming is the same word we saw in Matthew 3.1 of John the Baptist. And again at Matthew 4.17, which we just read earlier, it just means to, to herald, to make a public announcement. It's an official word to describe an official declaration. And the herald again proclaims the message that he's given. And here Jesus heralds the good news about the kingdom. But it's the third aspect of Jesus' ministry that Matthew focuses on here. Jesus went throughout, throughout all Galilee, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get used to reading the Gospels and I forget how amazing this actually is and how amazing this actually was. You know, in every... Every once in a while in the Old Testament, there's a, a prophet who heals somebody or, or somebody was healed in an answer to prayer. Re- remember, too, that when you read through the Old Testament, that's a period of about about 4,000 years. Uh, from Abraham to Jesus was about 2,000 years. And so even if there was 20 healing miracles in the Old Testament, really that's only one on average every 100 years. Healing is very, very rare, almost non-existent in the Old Testament. Plus, in in those days, medical knowledge was really so much less than it was today. And so sicknesses, most sicknesses had no cure at all. And so for 400 years before Jesus appeared, since the deportation to to, um, Babylon and the return of to the land under Cyrus, there had been no prophet and so no miracle. 400 years with no prophets No miracles. John the Baptist did no miracles. And so what we see here is truly extraordinary. Jesus healed every disease and every affliction among the people. The New American Standard Bible translates verse 23 this way. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Now, by adding kind of there, they're, they're trying to make it clear that Matthew probably doesn't mean that Jesus healed every single sick person without exception throughout all Galilee. 
And, and I get that and I appreciate that. He probably didn't heal every single sick person without exception throughout Gal- Galilee. But by, by translating the kind of there, by adding that, I think it kind of softens what Matthew is saying. The, the sense is likely that there was no case that Jesus came across that he didn't heal. No sickness or disease was a match for Jesus' healing ministry. Matthew says nothing about how Jesus did this. He simply healed them. Ancient healers would normally make a big deal about their techniques and their methods. Jesus just healed everything that he encountered. That also sets him apart from other so-called healers in the ancient and the modern world because they, they would... They had their successes and their failures, but Jesus healed every disease among the people. Even modern scientific methods are nowhere near what Jesus did. Nobody before or since has done anything like what Jesus did in the years of his earthly ministry. Unless we count maybe the apostles who were after Jesus in the first few years of their ministries, but really there was nothing like what Jesus and the apostles did. And the news of this spread throughout all Syria, uh, throughout the whole, really the whole known world, Syria was north of Galilee, or according to Roman calculations, they called Syria really all of Palestine. And so the idea could be that it, it spread either north of where he was in Galilee, or even could it be that it spread really throughout that whole area that, that Rome occupied. But whatever exactly Matthew means when he says all Syria, the, the news of Jesus, Matthew tells us, spread really all around. And so verse 24 again, His fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Now this is an impressive list of sicknesses, really covering the whole gamut of every kind of sickness imaginable. All those who were sick is literally those who had it badly, and then we have those with manifold or various diseases. That's the same word that we saw in verse 23, but now it's in the plural. There's various kinds of diseases. The next word is translated pains, and it's, it's a really a super strong word that was used of torture. And, and so these people are surrounded or constrained with torturous pains. Then we have demoniacs or the demonized, people oppressed or possessed by demons. Jesus healed them. Then it says those having seizures. It's sometimes translated epileptics. And it's literally those who are moonstruck, those who are what we would maybe call in our day lunatics. The the word lunar and lunatics, these are moonstruck people. And whatever this was, whatever this sickness exactly was, the, the ancient world thought that it was influenced by the cycles of the moon. The final item in Matthew's list is paralytics, which included all kinds of conditions which made people lame or immobile. And for the vast majority of these, there was no cure in Jesus' day. Note again in verse 24 at the end there, it says, He healed them. And in all the cases recorded in the New Testament of Jesus' healings, we see that they were instantaneous, that they were miraculous, that they were complete. That is, the entire condition was cured, healed, or removed, never to come back again. And they were visible for those present. They were undeniable miracles that even Jesus' enemies could not deny that He healed people and that He did the miracles that He did. 
And that is totally unlike the so-called faith healers of today. Notice that Jesus is in dark Galilee. These people aren't a people of great faith. And, and, and he is, he is healing them. It doesn't matter. Jesus isn't depending on their faith or on anything in the people. He is going to them and healing them. And during the approximate three years of Jesus' public ministry, Jesus would have virtually eradicated sickness in the entire area where he ministered. And so what Jesus did is unlike anything that we've ever seen in history past or even among the so-called faith healers of today. Jesus is doing real, actual, powerful miracles by the power of God. And what he's really doing then is he's bringing kingdom-like conditions to the land of Israel. In verse 25, it tells us that great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Really, again, the whole surrounding area. Now, sometimes in the book of Matthew, the crowds are are positive. Sometimes they're more hostile, but they're not the same as the disciples. The, these people may follow him, but not in the same way that the disciples followed him. And so we've seen then the, the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so I want to ask you in closing, what is your response to Jesus Christ? We've seen his light in Galilee, a great light had dawned. We've seen his call, the, the nature of true discipleship, to follow him and obey him. Seeing his light, the believer lives for Christ. Worship motivates obedience. Jesus saves us and then he sends us out to serve him in the world. We've seen Jesus' ministry. He taught and heralded and healed the people. Now, Jesus is no longer on earth in the flesh, but his ministry continues through his word and through his people. The miracles that Jesus and his first apostles did are not happening today. And sometime I'll spend some time explaining that and talking about that. But Jesus is working just as powerfully today to bring sinners to repentance. He is working through his word, shining light so that we can see who he is and know him. Maybe he is working in your heart today, showing you in greater ways who he is, opening your spiritual eyes to his glory. The message is the same now as it was then. Repent, turn from evil and draw near to God through Jesus Christ. The call is the same as well. Follow him, obey his word, serve him by serving his church, by serving his people and by evangelizing the lost. Jesus' ministry in Galilee is done, but his ministry through you might be just beginning. He's still calling people to follow after him. And so will you take his yoke upon you, learn from him, and be used by him in his mission in the world? If you would, then turn from your sin, listen to his teaching, heed the preaching of his word, grow in your knowledge of him, and then lose your life for his sake. This is... The way that Jesus says we will find true life. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and thank you for your word, for this passage that shows us Jesus Christ. Father, help us to see his light. Help us to heed his call. Help us to lose our lives for his sake, which we know is really for your glory, for our own good. Lord, help us to know this Jesus, to see him and to serve him well, we pray in Jesus' name. I want to close with 
1 Peter chapter 4, which it seems like a fitting concluding benediction for us. First Peter 4 and verse 10, As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.